You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Thank you, worship team. Um, love to worship with you. Uh, it's good to be back in this spot this week. I so appreciate uh, Jason, Chris, and Griff uh, so capably uh, leading us in the Word over the last few weeks. That gave me a little space to commit some mental energy and uh, time to some other things. Uh, and so I've been looking forward to this time. Um, we said uh, a long time ago when the staff sat down and started uh, even discussing our transition from this campus to the new campus, uh, this space to the new building and all of that, we said, you know, there's a week coming when we're going to say next week we're meeting over there. And uh, this is that week. Um, I was mindful last week as Griff was sharing some of the history of our church uh, that there are two buildings uh, in which this church met that no longer exist. Uh, And I was also mindful of the fact that there were probably a lot of people 100 years ago when that building across the street was built who thought this is the last building this church will ever need. Right? You thought, this is it, man. We've we've built it. This This is the one. Um, and it has served our church family well uh, for nearly 100 years now, uh, and we're so grateful for that space. I know it has a rich meaning uh, to many of us. Uh, for some of you, uh, that's especially so. Maybe your kids were baptized in that building. Uh, maybe your kids were married in that building. Uh, and it just reminds me of how I'm just so thankful that our God is not limited to a building. Uh, as important as those spaces can be, uh, God can use uh, a building like that one. Uh, God can use a uh, repurposed gymnasium with a Lego floor uh, to uh, bring people to faith in Christ. Uh, I never forget a few years ago in our church in East Texas, we had to transition out of our old sanctuary there, and we repurposed our family life center, our gym over there, and had an older gentleman in the church come to me, and he said, nobody will come to church out there in that gym. Kind of like that. He just miffed, you know. Y'all are surprised that people in church get miffed, aren't you? Um, He was miffed. And several weeks later, he came to me after we had had 400-plus people meeting out there for worship. We had had people come to faith in Christ out there. And he goes, I guess people will go to church out there. They will. Um, So I'm just so grateful uh, that the church is, uh, while buildings are important, um, and we're thankful for them, uh, they're not ultimate. Uh, They're not what's most important. And so I'll tell you that next week, Uh, We're not going to spend much time talking about a building, okay? We're going to worship, and uh, we're going to do the things that are most important in that space. And while we are turning the page, you might say, uh, closing a chapter in the history of this church, uh, as this is our final regular worship service to be held on our downtown campus, uh, we plan to continue using this building primarily for student ministry and other things, so uh, this will still be a part of of our our church. Uh, You can know. Uh, that uh, we're looking forward to next Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11 as we gather at our new home. And uh, it's going to be an exciting day. And uh, we're busy putting the the finishing touches on everything, but you need to know uh, that uh, as you you eagerly anticipate getting over there next week, uh, we're going to ask that you go in with a spirit of grace and understanding. It's a lot like moving into a new home. You move into a new home, and a lot of times you've got sheets hanging on the windows and that kind of stuff, and uh, we're not planning to do that, but uh, our our shades are still in production, and so there's some things that will not be uh, 100% where we want them just yet, but just know that that's coming, and so just 
uh, come with a heart of understanding and grace. And also, I would say, extend some grace to the staff this week. Uh, we have uh, mostly moved over there. Uh, we got the, the, the phone system turned on over there this week. And so if you do call the office, it may not uh, get answered in the way that you might hope or expect. And just bear with us a little bit until we, we get fully moved over there and everything. So, uh, But we're looking forward to a great, great time. For these next three Sundays... Uh, we're going to spend some time looking at the Bride of Christ. Um, most of last year we were in John's Gospel, and we're planning to continue our study of John's Gospel. We're going to pick it up there in chapter 11 with the resurrection of Lazarus, um, Lord willing, the Sunday after D-Now. And so, uh, but for these next three weeks, I wanted us to, 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 to do some ecclesiology. That's the study of the church. I want us to look at the Bride of Christ. And I want to assure you that while the new building is essentially complete, the church is still very much under construction. The church is under construction. The text that we're going to look at today, Matthew chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew 16 today. What you'll find there is a profound introduction to the church from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in hermeneutics, that's, the, that's the, the study of biblical interpretation. One of the tools that we use in interpreting Scripture is what's called the first mention principle. And what we find in Matthew chapter 16 is the first mention in the New Testament of the church. The word church. And it was, it, it was uttered by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the one who is the focal point of the church. It's his church. And we're going to talk about that some this morning. And so this section of Scripture, it sums up so many of the, the critical realities that define the church. Uh, whenever you talk about church, people think about a lot of different things. There are some people who immediately think of organized religion. And they'll say, I don't want to have anything to do with the church. And they think of organized religion. Maybe they've been hurt through organized religion. Maybe they've been hurt by an abusive church leader. Uh, but they, that, that's what comes to their mind, is they think of organized religion. They think of money-grubbing pastors who talk about nothing but wanting your money and, and that kind of stuff. And they're flying around in jets and uh, all sorts of stuff like that. And so they have this distorted view of what the church is. Some people think of the church as nothing more than just kind of a social club. It's a place to, to go and be seen and to see others. And it's, you know, especially here in what, what is still considered, I guess, the, the Bible Belt a little bit, there's a, a cultural benefit to being involved with a church, right? Uh, it's kind of a moral club, so to speak. That's what they think of when they think of the church. But is that really a biblical view of the church? Uh, the, the word is ecclesia in Scripture. It actually comes from two words, ek and kaleo. It is the called out ones. It's the called out assembly. And when it was originally used, it wasn't even used of the church, actually. It would have been used uh, of, of any kind of assembly, an assembly of people, okay? Which is one of the reasons that fundamentally we would say that the church is a gathering of people. Uh, it's not something to be done uh, in, in private or uh, something that you do in isolation from other people. And we recognize there are people who join us faithfully every week online, and, and it's necessary for, for physical limitations and all those things that people do that. But the church is intended to be a community of people, and we're going to see that. And so uh, this section sums up so many of those critical realities about the church. Because think about this, on every first day of the week since the day that Jesus rose from the dead over 2,000 years ago, believers have gathered together to celebrate his resurrection. We don't just do that on Easter Sunday. Every Lord's Day, we sang of the resurrection this morning. Uh, 
Uh, and so uh, we gather together, gather for worship. We gather to fellowship. We gather to sing. We gather to pray, to hear the word taught. So there are a lot of views about the church. And I want to maybe help shape your view of the church a bit this morning uh, as we look at this biblical text. Now, the church is described in John chapter 6 as the love gift from the Father to the Son. The Father calls, the Father draws, the Father saves, gives to the Son, the Son keeps and raises at the last day in gratitude for the love gift that the Father gives Him. And so the church, not only a love gift from the Father to the Son, but an act of love on the part of the Son by which He purchases the church at the cross. And that defines for us its incalculable value. See, the highest price ever paid was paid for the church. The first sermon I ever preached was from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It says, For as much as you know you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he has purchased us with his blood. We're going to talk about the church. And so here in Matthew chapter 16, if you know the the lay of the land in Matthew's gospel, uh, much like the other gospels, you know that this is kind of a critical turning point in the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. Much of the gospels focus in on the final days of Jesus, actually. And you'll discover that, uh, I think, more clearly as we open the second half of John's gospel. Because it took us a little over a year to get through the first half of John. What you're going to find in the second half really covers the final days and hours of the life of Jesus, largely. Uh, Because that's, that's the purpose, right? That is the essence of the gospel. Remember, John said there, I write these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And in him you may have life. That's, that's what this is about. And so uh, in much the same way, Matthew's gospel uh, kind of shifts gears a little bit here. Things, things begin to intensify. And if you study the first few verses of chapter 16, you'll see that these, these two groups that were typically at odds with one another, they find agreement on one thing. This Jesus guy might be a threat. And so it tells us here that both the Sadducees and the Pharisees are coming together to test him, and they're asking him to show this sign from heaven and so forth. And so it's in that context that Jesus has now taken his disciples to an area, a region called Caesarea Philippi. It was a hotbed for pagan idol worship. It was also where you would find the headwaters for the Jordan River that would flow down through to the Sea of Galilee, ultimately to the Dead Sea, and evaporate. And so this is a critical area. It was an area that was originally named after the god Pan. Uh, Panacea is what this area would have been known as. But, of course, uh, the Caesars, who were pretty full of themselves, thought of themselves as a god and said, I think this area needs to be named after Caesar. And so it's Caesarea Philippi is what it became known as. So it was in this place that we find uh, the words here of Matthew chapter 16, uh, verses 13 through 18. So let's pick it up there. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? This is the way that he commonly referred to himself, identifying with us in our humanity. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Don't forget that phrase. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus took his disciples to the area of Caesarea Philippi, north of the Sea of Galilee, and he asked them about the opinions of the crowds. Not because uh, Jesus was obsessed with what everybody was thinking about him and all that. It wasn't that. Uh, It's typically Jesus would ask questions for the purpose of teaching. Uh, And so he says, who do the people say that I am? And their answer showed that the people were unsure and incorrect. Now, there are some historical reasons why they would say John the Baptist, for example, or Elijah. We're not going to get into all of that this morning, but some of that ties into clearly their Jewish roots and so forth and, and their belief about the patriarchs. And, uh, and, of course, Herod had this issue with John the Baptist. He thought John the Baptist is going to come back and haunt me for the rest of my life. And, uh, and so Jesus then asked them really the most important question that you can ask another human being. But who do you say that I am? And much like defining the church, the same thing happens as it comes as it relates to Christ. There are a lot of different viewpoints today, and and people have all different differing opinions about who Jesus really is. Some would say Jesus is just a mythical figure. Some would say he was just a great teacher. He was a prophet. He was a god, but not God in the flesh. And and so you have all these different viewpoints. And so that's why this question becomes critically important. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered for the rest. That shouldn't surprise us. Peter was pretty impetuous, pretty quick to speak, right? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This was not a conclusion that Peter had reached on his own. It was revealed to him by God the Father. And so it was in that context that Jesus made this statement. The verse of Scripture in this section that is probably most familiar to you, also probably the most debated section or verse in this entire section of Scripture. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Just a few words, but they are foundational to understanding what the Lord has been doing on this earth for the past 2,000 years. They're critically important. So I want us to extract some key truths from this text. Number one, Jesus is the foundation. Jesus is the foundation. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, the memories that have been popping up in my Facebook feed uh, were naturally related to the building over at 565 Colin McKinney Parkway. And uh, one of those memories was a, a, a photo album of the foundation being poured. Never forget it. Cool, crisp morning. Gather over there before the sun comes up, and here come the concrete trucks, right? So all this preparation had been done, the soil had been tested, all these things, the pad had been, you know, level, all the things that have to be done in preparation for the actual pouring of the foundation. Uh, the concrete itself had to be tested to make sure that it would hold up because you want, you've got to have a solid foundation upon which to build. Well, the church is no different. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so some would look at this text and some would say, well, that's Peter then, Right? This has been the teaching of the Catholic Church for centuries. Peter was the first pope, and what Jesus meant here is, you're Peter, and on you I will build my church. But is that really what Jesus meant? So Jesus uses a play on words here, I believe. Simon's nickname, okay, Simon Peter, Simon's nickname was actually Petras. Okay, that's where we get Peter from, and it literally means little rock. Okay, you think of a rock that you could pretty easily bend down, pick up, and maybe skip it across the pond or, or the lake or, or whatever, the river, you know, whatever that case may be. So you're thinking about a rock. And so Jesus would build his church not on Simon Peter, but on solid rock. 
on solid rock, bedrock. Okay, so you can look at uh, like a, a, a mountain and you can say, man, that's a big rock. If you drive even up through parts of Oklahoma and other parts, you'll see where they've literally cut the roads through the rock. Uh, and so uh, we, we think of other t- texts of Scripture that we'll look at in just a moment as we think about the rock. And so he says here, notice the specific language that Jesus uses. And I tell you, you are Peter, think little rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus distinguishes between Peter and the rock. If he had meant Simon personally, then he could have easily said, You are Peter, and upon you I will build my church. Instead, Jesus will build his church on this rock, on bedrock. Now, rock, again, it's a regular theme in Scripture. God concealed Moses in the cleft of the rock when his glory passed by there in Exodus chapter 33. David said in Psalm chapter 27 verse 5 that safety and security in God is is like being lifted up and planted on a rock. He set my feet upon a rock, we sing, you know. Pulled me out of the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock. Jesus himself compares his word and obedience to his word to solid rock. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jace talked about this just a few weeks ago. Everyone then who hears these words and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the, on the rock, a solid foundation. So when Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, he wasn't talking about Peter personally himself. He was speaking about his word and even more specifically about himself. He is the very foundation. Jesus is the cleft of the rock. Uh, Jesus is our shelter and our protection. Jesus and his word are the solid foundation for a life that will not be destroyed in the judgment to come. Now you might be thinking, well, but what about Ephesians 2? Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And what's more... Peter says this about all Christians, not just apostles and prophets. Because in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is, uh, I am the, I'm the bedrock Upon which you, but what I'm going to use to build my church is you. <laughs> you. You are living stones. You are being built up. And so when we say that the church is still under construction, we're not talking about a physical building that has a physical address where you can receive mail. We're talking about us. We're talking about people that are being built up in Christ Jesus as living stones. This is why the Word of God has such an, an, an exalted place in our lives and our worship. We want to be people of the Word. It's why we say we are biblically based. We are striving in every way to be biblically based. We sing songs that are rooted in the very Word of God, sometimes even quoting Scripture. Our prayers saturated with the truths of Scripture. We spend the bulk of our time studying the Word of God. Every bit of our teaching and our worship is to remind us of who Jesus is and what He has done. He is the foundation. He's the foundation. Notice number two here. Jesus is the builder. Jesus is the builder. Uh, one of the things that I, I, I've marveled at in many ways is 
the, the, the skill that goes into the building of a building. There are people with all different disciplines and all different skills that have come together to put that building together, to, 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 to watch it come up out of the ground, literally. It's been an amazing, amazing process. Well, here, Jesus is the builder. Notice what the text says, I will build my church. I will build my church. So Jesus is not just the foundation of the church, he's the builder of the church. He never turned the building of the church over to Peter or any of the apostles. He certainly didn't turn it over to to pastor elders like myself or to the church as a whole. Jesus is the builder. Now that is a promise. That's a promise. When he says, I will build my church, that is a promise. It's a promise that Jesus has kept for the past 2,000 years. And every time a person turns from their sin, the faith in Jesus Christ is converted. Christ is building his church. Now, while I've been preaching the gospel for 30-plus years of my life, well over half of my life in a vocational sort of way, I've never saved anyone. I've never converted a person. Now, there have been times early in my ministry where I kind of thought it was my responsibility to bring conviction to people's hearts. But as I've grown and matured in my, my own faith and as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I realized, you know what, that's not my job. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. My job's to be faithful. Uh, I, I'm more like an envelope, <laughs> Right? When you, when you get an important letter from someone, there was a day when we like, like actually got letters from people in the mail. Some of y'all remember that? Okay. Normally what was most important to you was not the envelope that it came in. Although when Christy and I were dating and, and, and we did have to be separated by distance and she would send like, I don't know if she like put her perfume on it or what, but I, I got, it was, but I wanted to see what was inside it. Okay. Like I didn't just set it on the counter and leave it sitting there without opening it. What was most important was the message inside So the message, while it's certainly a sermon that I've spent time preparing and praying over and agonizing over in some cases, what's most important is the Word of God itself. The Word of God itself. And so he says, I will build my church. I will build my church without question. Mainline denominations and churches, particularly in America, are in decline. Some even in our area. But Jesus has promised to build his church, and he has faithfully done so, even in the most dangerous places today. You think about Afghanistan and North Korea and Somalia and others that that are typically at the top of that list. There are Christians there living in faith and obedience. Even a place like Bangladesh, less than 1% of the population of Bangladesh are followers of Jesus Christ, and yet there is a remnant there. There are people who are being built up in their faith, and though they may be a tiny few, Jesus is building his church. He is building his church. It's a promise. I will build my church is also a comfort, particularly those of us who are in church leadership. Because so often, particularly in American culture, We are driven by success, right? And success in the modern-day church is most often associated with attendance numbers and the size of budgets and how many square feet you're responsible for and all that kind of stuff. In fact, it's a really dangerous thing because what happens many times with church leaders is we attach our identity to those things. So when attendance is on the rise and the church is building a new building, and then you can feel pretty good about yourself, right? Yeah, but what happens when that's not the case? 
What happens to the faithful pastor out there in the middle of nowhere, Timbuktu, where there's not explosive growth coming up the Highway 75 corridor? And he's been out there year after year after year faithfully preaching the word. And it's the same 35 or 40 people that show up every week. Would we say, that guy's a failure? R- really? Is that, is that how we measure this thing? And, and I, if I'm completely honest with you this morning, there have been seasons and times in my life and ministry where I found myself attaching my identity to those kinds of things. And it's wrong. Because this is not my church. I'm called to be faithful. I'm entrusted with a stewardship to lead, sure. But he says, I will build my church. So we can be comforted by the truth that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and he does save them. In every place, he has reserved a people for his own possession. Jesus continues to build his church. He's the builder. He's the foundation. And number three, the church belongs to Jesus. It belongs to Jesus. Over the course of my 50-plus years as a follower of Jesus Christ, I came to faith in Christ in Garland, Texas as as an 8-year-old boy. And over those 50-some years, I've been a part of eight different church families from that time. Uh, In in Garland, and in Louisville, Flower Mound area, when we lived in Ohio, and then back in Texas. And uh, in every one of those churches... Uh, And I've I've served on staff or pastored uh, six of those churches. And every one of those churches, there was someone at some point who got upset because things didn't go their way. Shocker, right? There would be people in a church who got upset because things didn't go their way. Uh, And I know I've told you my story. I thought people would just be happy all the time and everybody would like me all the time. And uh, I quickly learned that wasn't true. Some simply wanted to control things. Uh, others had a consumer mindset. And so they viewed the church as a place where they should be able to come and be comfortable 100% of the time. I'm not just talking about the temperature. I'm not just talking about the thickness of the padding on the chairs. It's all about their comfort. It's what I want. It's, it's, this, my preferences are what's most important. And it's a consumer mindset. And so there were those who would only be supportive and only be involved if what we were doing scratched their itch, you might say. In each place... Some have left because they couldn't have their way. It's the old playground mentality. I I don't like this. I'm going to take my toys and I'm going to go home. Okay. Some have wanted to claim outright ownership of the church. Ownership of the church. I'll never forget one of the first business meetings that I led. A little lady who had been in that church for a long time. Maybe longer than I'd been alive at that point. I was in my late 20s. She looked up in that business meeting. She goes, I was here when you came and I'll be here when you leave. She owned the church, she thought. And I could, t- I could tell you story after story after story after story of pastors who've left the church discouraged because there were certain people who had a stranglehold on the church. There was a, maybe a family that controlled the church. They controlled the church with their money. They controlled the church with their influence. And people in the church knew that if this family wasn't for something, it ain't going to happen. And if they are for something, you better get behind it because it's going to happen. I had a friend who pastored up in Bar Harbor, Maine. He first went to the church. He said, man, this is amazing. we got this family in our church. They own like six car dealerships. It's amazing. I talked to him six months later, and he goes, that's not so amazing. 
Because what they do is they try to use their money to control the church. They think they own the church. The church belongs to Jesus. This is not my church. This is not any of our leader. It's not their church. This is his church. It belongs to him. And he has given us instructions in his word. Our goal must not be having a church that suits us. It is to have a church that honors the Savior with faith and obedience. He owns the church. The church belongs to Jesus. He bought the church with his precious blood, right? It's his. It's his. And then number four, Christians are living stones. Living stones. The biblical church is always, always a community of people. Now, we understand the universal church. We talk about that here sometimes, what we call the, the capital C church. That is those through all time and, and history who have turned from their sin to faith in Jesus Christ. We make up the church universal, okay? But God has ordained, it's his plan A, the local church. A body of believers, the church locally expressed, Okay, First Baptist Church, Van Alstine. There are other churches in our area that, that we see that. The local expressions of the church, a church body gathered together, a family of believers. We often say it that way. And so it's always a community of people and never a building. So Jesus is not talking about constructing a building to house the church. Again, thankfully, God is not limited to uh, a particular style of architecture or a particular type of building. I, I suspect there are some churches meeting today uh, in what few of us would be able to even call a building. Uh, there, I suspect there are churches in some parts of the world that are meeting under a grove of trees. Okay? There's no brick and mortar. There's no carpet. There's no padded seats. There's no air conditioning to be thinking of. None of that. So, so w w what are we talking about here? Jesus is not talking about constructing a building to house the church, but the church itself. And that means saving sinners and joining them to himself and their fellow saints. So let, let, me, let me give you the rest of the text that I referred to earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says this, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is why church membership, for us, it's really important, is reserved for those who are in Christ. We would say we believe in a regenerate church membership. We're not a social club with dues. That's not what this is. That's not what God intends. 
Christians are living stones which are built up by the Spirit of God into a spiritual house. Living stones who happily accept the authority and the validity and the control of the choice, precious cornerstone who is Jesus Christ. And so taking it even beyond the imagery of a building, we are a chosen, adopted family. Isn't that awesome? We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for God's own possession. We've been chosen, anointed, sanctified, constructed in order to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. How did we get here in the first place? It says we were a people who had not received mercy, but we've now received mercy. And all this happens through the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, gives us faith and repentance and causes us to walk in obedience to the Lord. It's His church. And He's building His church as He's calling people to faith and repentance. Now when you look at this text, maybe you're thinking to yourself, what did Jesus mean by the gates of hell? I know typically, you know, maybe some some spiritual warfare imagery comes to mind. You're like, I'm going to, you know... Yield, wield my sword and that kind of thing. The word Hades is actually translated here hell in the ESV. Hades is a reference to the grave. Uh, it's the New Testament equivalent of the word Sheol or the place of the dead, the grave. Hades also refers to, I believe, the demonic powers behind the grave. Um, scripture tells us that our enemy is a, a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so the building materials for the church are living stones. So let me put it this way. Jesus mines these living stones from the quarries of death. Think about that for a moment. He mines these living stones from the quarries of death. Uh, there's a fairly well-known golf course down around San Antonio. Uh, and that, there's an entire area down there called the quarries. Uh, and it's literally a, a rock quarry. So you see where this rock is extracted. It's mined out of this. And so you think of, by the Holy Spirit, we're being mined out of these quarries of death. Okay? With, without Christ. And so he rescues us from, from Hades, from the grave, from the power of sin exercised by the devil. It's effortless for him, but from our point of view, it's hard. It's time-consuming, lifelong work. And so picture yourself as a living stone placed by the Lord Jesus Christ into the spiritual house of God. And see what God's doing? Sometimes the world thinks that the church is obsolete. It's out of date. And yet Satan cannot destroy the church. He cannot. Death will never overpower the saints. The work of Christ to save sinners from the power of Satan and the grip of death will never fail. From our perspective, the progress seems slow many times and unsteady. But Jesus promised that the gates of Hades, the power of the devil and death, would never prevail against his church. And he has kept that promise. He's kept that promise. So our hope today is that Jesus is building his church. Nothing that we see takes him by surprise. In fact, he has decreed all things that come to pass. His purposes are being fulfilled. And just as genuine Christians are often tempted to be hopeless in light of the conditions of our world, and and the wicked are tempted to claim victory, everything seems to be going their way. And we feel like, man, we're losing ground. The, The perversions that were unthinkable a generation ago were now considered normal. The comfort to the church is that Jesus is still at work. 
He's still at work, and his church is invincible. He cannot fail, and we cannot lose. You see, the church is the gathering of true worshipers who worship God in the Spirit, worship Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh, says Paul. We worship in spirit and in truth, as our Savior said we were called to do. So the church is the fellowship of the saints, and we are to stimulate one another to love and to good works. We care for one another. We love one another. We use our spiritual gifts and follow the pattern of the multiple one another's in the New Testament. To be mutually strengthened in each other. And we're the launching point for evangelism. The proclamation of the gospel is the very purpose for our remaining in the world so that we can preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. The church is infinitely more important than all human kingdoms, all human organizations, all human leaders, all human educators or politicians, all human rulers. The church far more important than anything that will burn up or decay. The church is a living body of Christ in the world, given the calling to speak the truth of God regarding salvation to the lost world around us. So the church, it's incomparable in its value. We steward the words, the only words of eternal life. We must, we must. It's not the great suggestion, it's the great commission it's the Great Commission. We must because we love the Lord. We love each other. We, we, we meet because we love His Word, because we, we love His worship, because we want to shine the light of the gospel in the world. And we will not forego the blessed experience no matter what comes against us. We're the church. We're the light of the world. So if we could for just a moment this morning bow our heads together. And in this time of decision, reflection upon the Word of God this morning, what He's saying to us through His Word and by His Holy Spirit, I have to wonder, are you one of those living stones? Mind from a quarry of death. Can you identify a time in your life where you turn from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ? Do you know this morning that you're in a right relationship with God? Not because of anything you've done or ever could do, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Reconciling us as sinful human beings to a holy God. Again, Peter said it this way. For as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. But with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Is that your testimony today? Are you one of those living stones? Being built up by the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Word of God in your life. church is under construction and if you're here today and you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ I rejoice with you 
It could be perhaps that God is calling you to unite with this fellowship of believers and make this your church home. A place where we together can do life together, challenge one another, encourage one another, sometimes forgive one another. By the grace of God, do all that we can to make much of Jesus, the one who owns the church. The foundation and the builder of the church. It's his. Father, we thank you for your word today, and we thank you. We thank you that you are building your church. May we always be found faithful. Faithful to what you've called us to. Faithful in our proclamation of the gospel. And living out in consistent lives the power of the gospel at work in us. We give you all the praise and the honor and the glory for your resurrection power at work in our lives. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com. Thank you.